Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 48, Dougie. At 7.30am on July 1st, 1916, 14 British and 6 French infantry divisions left their trenches and began crossing no man's land. The Battle of the Somme, the Anglo-French component of the General Allied Offensive, had finally begun. Across a 25-kilometer front, 55,000 troops advanced in the first wave of the assault. Weighed down by 30 kilograms of equipment, they struggled up the parapet and began walking towards the German line. All was well and quiet. It was a brilliant summer morning, cloudless and bright. Birdsong could be heard among the huffs of laboring infantry in the slight breeze which rustled the grass. It made for a calm and sanguine moment. Each man knew the importance of their task. For seven long days, their guns had pulverized the German positions with unyielding veracity. 1,700,000 shells from all caliber of gun had taken part, with the purpose of cutting wire and destroying enemy fortifications. From the Allied trenches, men watched the firestorm with mouths agape, the earth trembling beneath their feet. During these tense moments, men sought to distract themselves in various ways. Some played cards, others triple-checked equipment, or sat in silence sipping their additional rum ration and personal reflection. Many, too, found solace by writing letters to friends and loved ones. As terrible as it was, the punishment being dealt to the Germans was nothing short of uplifting. Germany is finished, wrote one British private. We're within a few minutes of what is to be the beginning of the end of German culture, scribbled another, a lieutenant in charge of a mortar battery. No one expected anything different. After all, nothing could survive this type of shelling. All that would be left to do was climb up the parapet and begin the slow march towards Berlin. As they moved closer to the German line, their optimism was well-placed. German artillery had been quiet, and there were no reports of enemy movement. South of the River Somme, units from the French 6th Division had captured their day's objectives, gaining three kilometers in the process. To their left, north of the river, the British 13th and 14th Attack Corps had overrun the enemy's 1st and 2nd positions, securing a plateau held by the Germans since 1914. Initial confidence would soon be dashed by developments in the north. Along the British-held sectors east of Albert, things began to unravel. British infantry crossing no man's land were optimistic. For many, this was their first taste of battle. Having answered Lord Kitchener's call for volunteers, they were eager to prove their worth. Although innocent to the ways of war, they knew the eyes of the world were upon them. Some smoked cigarettes or hummed regimental tunes as they marched. From their machine guns, the Germans watched this mass formation appear. Although concussed, exhausted, and near collapse from the week's incessant shelling, they had mustered enough strength to man their posts. There, they waited patiently, silently, for the right moment. When the British were within 20 meters of their trench, the German machine guns rattled to life, sweeping down the line in a continuous wave. Men were scythed down in heaps. Platoons were isolated from company command and communication disintegrated. Survivors threw themselves to the ground and began crawling to the nearest shelter. There was nothing else to do. All around them, their brothers-in-arms were being eviscerated by German bullets. Those who stood up were immediately cut down. Then, the artillery roared to life, engulfing the battlefield in a whirlwind of steel and flame. The results would be carnage on a scale never before seen, nor surpassed in Britain's military history. 
a staggering 57,540 casualties, including 19,240 men killed on July the 1st alone, a number which continues to benumb the mind a century later. The first day of the Battle of the Somme has become shorthand for the folly of attritional war, and represents the futility of the Great War on the Western Front. Since then, historians have grappled with what went wrong on that day, putting forward a variety of theories, some strong and some poor. For decades, the unchallenged thesis was that British generals were incompetent fools, who refused to modernize their approach to war, thus leading to the massacres on the Somme and at Passchendaele in 1917. In part, this view was molded through the experiences of the Second World War, which was more fluid and mobile than the First War. By avoiding the stalemate of the trench system, generals of that generation must have been inherently smarter and better versed than their predecessors, whose idea of innovation was to send waves of hapless infantry against fortified machine guns and artillery. Figures like MacArthur, Zhukov, and Montgomery are forgiven for their high casualties because it translated into battlefield success. Of all the generals in the First World War, none has been more criticized and reviled than British Commander-in-Chief Douglas Haig. Douglas Haig is by far the most controversial soldier in Britain's military history, with his name becoming a catch-all phrase for incompetent generalship. Popular opinion would have us believe that Haig was some form of psychotic butcher, who ordered thousands of young men to their death for his own gain without once seeing the battlefields themselves. He's been ridiculed for spending the war in cozy, well-adorned chateaus far behind the line, and for being indifferent to the suffering his men endured in the waterlogged trenches. The rows of white crosses which dot the cemeteries on the Somme and in Flanders are emotional proof of Haig's incompetence. But bad generals don't win wars, now do they? Haig's army took horrible losses in 1916-17, but by 1918 had developed into a finely tuned war machine, spearheading the final offensives which would drive the Germans out of France. When the armistice was signed that November, Haig was still in command. Despite the efforts of men like Lloyd George and Winston Churchill, who were vocal critics of his leadership, he was never ousted. In fact, Haig ended his military career as the longest-serving CNC of any of the original combatants, a position he occupied from December 1915 to January 1920. When Haig died in 1928, his death came as a shock to the nation and empire. Unlike so many of his contemporaries, he did not spend his post-war years defending his actions. He knew that history would be the ultimate judge and was content to let it be. In 1919, he turned down an offer of 100,000 pounds, over 1 million US dollars today, to publish a memoir. Perhaps this would make him an easier target later on, as he left no record to defend himself. Instead, Haig emerged from the war a national hero, and devoted the last decade of his life to the welfare of his veterans. He became national president of the British Legion and remained very much a public figure, making countless speeches, parade inspections, and traveling throughout the empire including stops in Canada, Newfoundland, and South Africa. An interesting tidbit, it was under Haig's term as president when the Legion adopted the red Flanders poppy as its symbol, a tradition which continues to this day. I have one pinned on my jacket as we speak. The stress of wartime command and exhausted post-war schedule would eventually catch up to him. The day before his death, he made a speech to a scout rally in Richmond. Halfway through, he appeared pale and dizzy, but managed to compose himself and finish. That night, Sunday, January the 29th, 1928, while visiting his sister and brother-in-law, Haig suffered a fatal heart attack. He was 66 years old. 
What followed was an outpour of public mourning. One columnist wrote, The war had returned to present us with another stunning casualty. His body was taken to central London, where for two days, tens of thousands of mourners shuffled past to pay their respect. From there, he was moved to Westminster Abbey for a state funeral. Two future kings, George VI and Edward VIII, walked behind the carriage, while two marshals of France, Ferdinand Foch and Philippe Pétain, were pallbearers. In an unprecedented step, the procession was broadcast live on BBC Wireless. Haig did not wish to be buried in the great St. Paul Cathedral. If he had, his resting place would be alongside Horatio Nelson and the Duke of Wellington. Haig wished to be buried at home, in the cemetery of Dryborough Abbey in South Scotland. His headstone, at his request, was identical to those in the cemeteries in France. In Britain, the decade following the Great War was one of reflection and understanding. There was little comment on the way it was fought, or debates over who made which mistakes when. It left a deep scar on British society. Nearly one million dead, and thousands of others disabled either mentally or physically. Britain had incurred an enormous debt, and thousands of ex-servicemen were attempting to re-enter the workforce as the nation sought to reclaim its position in world trade. Many veterans were unable to find suitable work, and thus fell into disillusionment. The land fit for heroes promised on their return looked strange and different. Whether it was coincidence or not, the floodgates opened soon after Hag's death. Ex-servicemen who were able to rebuild their lives were devastated once again with the market collapse of 1929. In short, people got pissed off and began questioning the purpose and conduct of the Great War. It appeared that things were worse off now than they were before, so what was the four-year struggle in the trenches really about? Suddenly, the probing searchlights were turned on the leaders who were the authorities during the Great War. The politicians were not spared, but the generals took the brunt of the blame. The trench poets, Siegfried Sassoon, Robert Graves, and Cecil Roberts, became famous for their harrowing depictions of combat, suggesting the war lasted so long because officers were too incompetent to end it. December 1928 saw the debut of R.C. Sheriff's Journey's End, a play about an infantry company slaughtered to the last man. It was an immediate success, spawning numerous productions and tours, culminating in a film adaptation two years later. Rounding out the disillusionment movement, was the publication of Remarks All Quiet on the Western Front in 1929. It sold over 2.5 million copies in its first 18 months, and helped bring the war full circle. A novel about destroyed youth and lost hope, it struck a chord with veterans who felt they had been squeezed between the sides. Although Remark maintained there was no political agenda behind the novel, it was trumped by pacifists for its realistic depiction of war and conflict. Remark's experiences, albeit from a German perspective, were all too relatable for many in post-war Britain. If the enemy suffered the same as we did, were we really the victors? In this atmosphere, public opinion turned on Haig. Like the saying goes, the swirls always come fastest before you're sucked down the drain. He was no longer Britain's hero. He was a cold, macabre sadist. A shrewd, emotionalist killer who schemed his way to the top. Better forgotten than to hear his name again. The name Douglas was dropped, and the public gave him a new name one fitting of such a beast, Hag the Butcher. Studies on British generalship stagnated. Then the Second World War ushered in a new class of leaders, the Montgomerys, the Slims, the Alexanders, whose skillful commands eclipsed those of their predecessors. Hag's name faded into the background. The 1960s, however, saw renewed public interest in the First World War. It had been 50 years since its beginning, and the experiences of the Second World War brought a new wave of academic study. 
The proliferation of the Cold War also helped in this regard, as the U.S.-Soviet standoff drew comparisons to the pre-war alliance system. It was during this decade when the British Cabinet and War Office opened their records to researchers for the first time. Fritz Fischer, Barbara Tuckman, Alistair Horne, and A.G.B. Taylor are just a few of the historians who published important works during this time period. But in 1961, a book appeared which harkened back to the disillusionment movement of the 1930s. The book was Alan Clark's The Donkeys. Clark's thesis was a stinging indictment of British generalship. Clark focused exclusively on British Western Front battles in 1915, primarily Neuve-Chapelle, First Ypres, and Luce. His argument was simple. British generals were stupid and ineffective, thus responsible for the massacres which followed. He was particularly harsh on Haig, who he labeled an unhappy combination of ambition, obstinacy, and megalomania. The donkeys also helped popularize the phrase lions led by donkeys, although the real origins of the saying remain debatable. Clark's book was not taken at face value. It received its fair share of reviews. John Terrain, who would go on to defend Haig's reputation two years later, remarked that the donkeys was the apotheosis of distortion. It failed to consider outside factors, and by choosing to focus on just one year and one sector, Clark conveniently overlooked the real Allied disaster of 1915, which was, you guessed it, the Dardanelles campaign, an enterprise which Haig staunchly opposed. Modern scholarship has gone on to eviscerate Clark's thesis. If you see it in a bookstore, feel free to put it down and pick up something else. We know more about the war today than we did 60 years ago. But the influence of the donkey still resonates. Popular media, the musical Oh, What a Lovely War, and the BBC series Black Outer Goes Forth, reinforced the zeitgeist by portraying British generals as childish pantomimes. In Black Adder, it was Haig's brilliant plan to attack the Germans in the exact same way for the 17th time in a row. The punchline being, the Germans would not expect it the 18th time. While these portrayals are all in good fun and shouldn't be expected to be historically accurate, they nevertheless helped reinforce the lions led by donkeys mentality. The real truth of the war receded into the background because it was better to forget it altogether. After all, it was through the First World War that we ended up with fascist Europe and Imperial Japan, the real enemies of Western civilization. Clearly, the 1918 job was never finished, and nothing represents such gross incompetence more than that. So then, who was Douglas Haig? This episode will not be a complete biography of the man. We still have lots to cover heading forward, so there will be ample time to discuss some of his more controversial decisions in future episodes. What I intend to do is provide a summary of Haig's life, from his early career to the outbreak of the Great War. This way, we'll have a good understanding of who he was as a person, but also trace the formation of his military doctrine, what he felt would work on the battlefield and what wouldn't. At the same time, I'll also stop to address some of the prominent myths about Haig we'll see that he was neither stupid nor incompetent. His ascension up the ranks was due to hard work and dedication to his craft. He did possess certain social advantages, but these were not ample enough to take him to the top. We'll also see that Haig was no reactionary technophobe. He was a cavalryman, yes, but he understood he lived in a time where new ideas and philosophies were being adopted at a torn pace, and he was eager to incorporate these tools as he felt necessary. What I hope to accomplish here is to provide you with a balanced view of Douglas Haig. So instead of seeing him as a one-dimensional marionette, we'll see that he was in fact a highly competent soldier who rose to command the largest and most technologically advanced army Britain had ever put in the field. 
a challenge no man in British history has been faced with before or after. Because of this, he would make decisions leading to bloody and tragic consequences. He was not a military genius by any stretch, but his record of service reflects that he was best suited for the job, helping to mold the BEF into a highly tuned combat machine. Good generals have lost wars in the past, but bad generals have never won them. Saying Haig was a bad general ignores the fact that the British army emerged as the driving force behind Allied victory. With Haig at the helm of that army, he certainly deserves more credit than he's usually given. Saying anything else would just be downright incompetent. Douglas Haig was born on June 8, 1861 in Edinburgh, Scotland, the 11th child of John and Rachel Haig. Haig's father, John Haig, was immensely wealthy. His distillery, Hag's Whiskey, was a popular brand in the mid-19th century, cementing the Hags as an influential family. Douglas Hag was thus born into wealth and luxury. But an important distinction needs to be drawn here. Wealth and prestige were two different things in Victorian England. His father's business brought in an annual income of a half million pounds by today's standards. But because he made his fortune through mercantile enterprises, the Hags were still considered second-class citizens. Those who inherited their fortunes aka those born from wealth, were always at the top of the pyramid. A solution to this problem presented itself when John Haig married Rachel Veach in 1839. Ironically, the Veaches were of higher standing than the Haggs, but had fallen on hard times economically, so much so that they were unable to supply their daughter with a dowry. It seems that none of this mattered to John Haig. He was 37 and she was 18, but more importantly, it allowed the Hags to break into the upper rung of society. Their marriage produced 11 children, of whom 9 survived. We don't know a whole lot about Hag's parents or what their relationship was like. Hag's father was a heavy drinker who never seemed to have much time for his children. Because of his health issues, he was prone to violent outbursts. But, as pointed out in Philip Warner's biography, his children were never afraid of him. By all accounts, John Hag was a considerable employer who ran his business well often taking part in local and charitable affairs. Nevertheless, his drinking caught up with him. Haig Sr. died at 76 years of age from cirrhosis in 1878. Of the two, it was Haig's mother who had the most lasting influence. Rachel Haig was a dedicated mother, who woke at 4 a.m. every morning to tend her family's needs. She was deeply religious, instilling in her children a sense of purpose. While many children will come to rebel at this some point in their lives, Douglas Haig embraced it fully, becoming just as devout as she was. Haig's critics have used his religious zeal to argue he was some fanatic crusader, but as we'll see, his personal faith worked hand-in-hand hand with the rigid discipline he forced on himself. Rachel's domestic responsibilities eventually wore her out. Haig was just 18 when she died in 1879. There was a large age disparity between Douglas and his eldest sibling, who was 20 years his senior. After his mother's death, the most influential person in his life was his sister, Henrietta, who acted as his confidant and advisor for much of his early career. It was Henrietta who first turned his attention to a career in the army. She would go on to marry another influential whiskey distiller, William Jameson. Douglas Haig began his education in 1871 at Oral House on Clifton. It was a public school, but in those days, public really meant exclusive. If you had the money, you could go. These schools were more like private boarding schools. There were no set semesters or half-terms, meaning that once you were there, you were there for the long haul. It was an environment which did not encourage self-pity, 
they were designed to keep students as busy as possible by giving them plenty of work to do. It was not uncommon for parents who lived or worked abroad to not see their children for years while they were enrolled in these establishments. As a schoolboy, Hag was nothing remarkable. His academic record was mixed, and his sporting record even less so. But he did improve over time. Even at a young age, he recognized that nothing would come easy, nor did he expect anything to. Through hard work and dedication, he steadily increased his performance, eventually graduating 7th in his class. Unfortunately, this did not put him on anyone's radar. He had enough personal wealth to spend his life in lavish idleness, but that lifestyle did not suit him. Nor would he use his fortune to get his way. After graduating Clifton, he found himself in the middle of the pack. His performance at Clifton had not attracted the attention of higher establishments, but there were alternatives. At this point, Hag decided on a career in the army. There was still a debate over what inspired him to take this route, but like many prospective recruits, he was probably drawn in by its romantic allure. Victorian England based its social values on what the army espoused. Discipline, masculinity, chivalry, and of course, religious conviction. It is not difficult to see how these could appeal to a young and impressionable student, especially when you consider the health problems of his father contrasted to the paternal care of his mother. Hegg had his sights set on Royal Military College Sandhurst, but with his grades, there was no way he would pass the entrance exam. So instead, he returned to school. At this time, colleges did not have entrance exams for the ordinary undergrad. They had what they called crammers, or tutorial establishments, where students work in residence to prepare for the entry exam. These crammers were in many ways more difficult than the examinations themselves. Each student was expertly assessed in a wide variety of topics, including economics, classics, and foreign languages. Hag applied himself accordingly, and passed his entry exam without difficulty, entering Brasenose College, Oxford, in 1881. Hag studied at Oxford for three years, and during this time we see many of his future characteristics begin to emerge. Like at Clifton, his behavior was hard-driven and success-oriented. While he belonged to several important dining clubs, he would often skip meetings and lunches, often to work away in his room late into the night. He was friendly with his fellow students, but never courted the popularity vote. For a long time now, Hegg's critics have used his behavior to argue that he was cold and impersonal. His success in school no doubt sparked feelings of jealousy amongst his classmates. But in a snobbish society like Victorian England, these criticisms should be taken with a grain of salt. Being from a lesser-standing family was enough to bring unwarranted criticisms especially if that individual suffered from any sort of physical handicaps. One of his future classmates at Sandhurst would comment, We were a cheerful and social lot except for Hag. He worked harder than anyone else and was seldom seen at mess except for meals. End quote. In his scathing biography, Dennis Winter uses this quote to exemplify what he considers Hag's unusual behavior. But it should be noted that the author of this quote was writing in the 1920s, when the war office was beginning to collect documents for their official history some 36 years after Hag left Sandhurst. But even if Hag's behavior was considered unusual for the time, that does not mean he was intellectually unfit. For one, Hag was notoriously inarticulate all through his adult life. He would often mumble off in mid-sentence and occasionally stutter. Some of his detractors, like Winter, have used his handicap as further proof of his supposed stupidity. Personally, I find this argument to be nothing more than a historical cheap shot. In today's ultra-PC society, using any sort of impediment to judge one's mental capacities is generally frowned upon, 
so why it continues to be used against Haig is beyond me. Secondly, Haig had a steely determination about him. He was a dedicated student who took his education and soldiering seriously. He may not have been the most social individual on campus, but that does not mean he harbored any competitive savagery against his classmates. He knew if he wanted to have a successful career, he needed to learn the value of hard work and discipline. If a few skipped dinners and backhanded comments were the price to pay, then he was willing to make that exchange. Although Haig worked hard, he never considered himself above anyone else. When he did attend social events, he made sure to never sit in the same spot twice. This way he got the opportunity to meet with each man individually. While he was not known for his sense of humor, he loved a good joke, and took part in his fair share of boozed and fused discussions. He had a rigid work discipline, but he also made time for social functions, his favorite being polo. It was during his time at Oxford when Haig was first introduced to the game. Then, as now, polo is a rich man's game, but had only been in Europe for 10 years when Haig first picked up the mallet. It had few supporters at the time, but quickly gained in popularity. For those interested in a military career, specifically in the cavalry, polo had an undeniable appeal to it. It encouraged teamwork, communication, and of course, hand-eye coordination. Haig proved himself a natural at the game, playing at regimental and national levels. For someone so often described as cold and impersonal, it seems unlikely he would have excelled at a sport which required such a high degree of sociability and teamwork. There were only four players per side, so individual skill could never supplant effective teamwork. After three years at Oxford, Haig entered Royal Military College Sandhurst on the 12th of February 1884. Unlike some of his colleagues, he did not have to write an entry exam. This was because Sandhurst waived the examination for university men who had passed their previous. The previous being that Crammer-style administration Haig attended prior to Oxford. While Sandhurst demanded a high degree of excellence in all faucets, it was not necessary for an applicant to have a degree. This might sound strange to us over a century later, but this was how many higher establishments operated at the time. Haig thus entered Sandhurst without obtaining his degree at Oxford. This was a perfectly legal and respected method of pursuing one's education. He did not exploit the system, nor make shortcuts as he is often criticized of doing. As a 22-year-old, Haig's Sandhurst career overlapped with a tumultuous time in Britain's military history. A series of colonial setbacks in Africa led to a heated debate in the Commons over the state of the Imperial Army. The 1879 massacre by the Zulus and defeat in the First Boer War of 1881-1882 had been a damaging blow to the Empire's reputation. Then, in 1883, all eyes were on the Sudan, when the expedition of Charles Gordon was besieged by rebel forces near Khartoum an event we discussed way, way back in episode 6. Nowadays, it's become fashionable to dismiss these campaigns as unfair contests between primitively armed natives against modern British weaponry. In truth, however, these contests were bitterly fought. So-called rebel groups were in fact well-armed, possessing a considerable number of rifles and heavy guns. They also held an advantage in numbers and geographic knowledge. Sandhurst would have drilled into Hag that campaigns in remote areas required a high level of training, logistical support, hygienic practices, and flexibility. Hag Sandhurst's career mirrored his time at Oxford, and we see a driven man with a burning desire to succeed. As a 22-year-old, he was already three to four years older than the rest of his classmates. With three years of Oxford under his belt, he was more mature and had a better grasp of what would be expected of him. Hag's coursework was theoretical rather than practical. Military history was not taught at all. 
Instead, Haig spent most of his time plowing through pages covering a variety of subjects. Logistics, tactical formations, map reading, fortifications, and the spellbinding world of military law and administration. He was a perfectionist, who impressed his instructors but did not win over the hearts of his classmates. He was appointed Senior Under Officer, or SUO, of his company, whose responsibility was to work closely with his instructors to ensure the company commander's wishes were quickly observed. Being SUO meant you were given a thankless job, balanced between the respect of his seniors and loyalty of his juniors. While previous SUOs fell into power trips, Haig was able to appease both. His juniors may not have liked him, but he was respected and admired, in so much that he was rewarded the Anson Memorial Sword for Best UO at the end of terms. In 1885, Haig was commissioned into the 7th Queen's Own Hussars, a cavalry regiment whose founding dated back to 1690. The following year, his regiment sailed to India for practical training. Haig landed himself as adjutant, giving him his first test of administration and logistics. Despite it being peacetime, Haig worked himself hard. He caught typhoid in 1887 and spent most of his time organizing regimental maneuvers and maintaining discipline. Haig would spend a decade in India, being promoted to captain in 1891. On top of his regular duties, Haig also spent his time prepping for his entry to staff college. In 1892, he took leave of his regiment and returned to England to pursue just that. Arriving home in September, he spent another full year grinding away in preparation, taking the time to learn German, which was one of the requirements. But it was all to no avail. Haig ended up failing the exam on mathematics. But it should be noted that even if he had passed the written portion of the exam, he would have been rejected on physical grounds. His invigilator had judged him colorblind. He could not tell brown from pink or red. For many ambitious young officers, failing the staff college examination marked the extent of their career, and Haig probably would have spent the rest of his days toiling away in India as a regimental officer. Instead, he returned to the 7th Hussars in India and worked his ass off, accepting a lower position than he had the previous year. His experience brought out the best of him, neither resentful nor self-pitying. He said all the right things and pursued his work with an undying diligence, which impressed not only his commanding officer, but the enlisted men as well. When he returned to England in 1893, the Hussars CEO had written of Haig, quote, I cannot say how much you will be missed by all of us, officers, NCOs, and men. Your example in the regiment has been worth everything to the boys, end quote. Haig's next appointment was back in England as aide-de-camp to General Sir Keith Fraser the Inspector General of Cavalry. This was a crucial point in Haig's career for two reasons. One, it showed he still had a future in the army, and two, it shaped his early military doctrine. While he was not commanding in the field, Haig was learning what it took to do so. Alongside Fraser, he attended maneuvers in France and Germany. One evening, he found himself sitting across from Kaiser Wilhelm, who chatted politely with the young officer. Haig was enamored by cavalry and of all the sticks used to beat his reputation, his dedication to this ancient branch is by far the largest. It's been said that he despised technology because it eclipsed cavalry's effectiveness, and that he squandered countless lives because he wanted the cavalry to take all the glory. With hindsight, it is easy to make this claim while ignoring the facts, and it's worth noting that by the 1890s, cavalry had already undergone numerous transformations. So it's worth taking a moment to pause and examine the doctrine of warfare Haig was formulating. 
Hag read widely throughout his career, which inevitably showed him how most battles were won. For centuries, the decisive blow had come from the cavalry. Whether it was William at Hastings, Wellington at Waterloo, or the great campaigns of the U.S. Civil War, the horse soldier had proven itself an adaptable weapon, always changing yet never lessening in its effectiveness. Because of this, it was also seen as the branch which could shape a nation's future. The cavalry was capable of doing everything on the battlefield. It could conduct reconnaissance, protect the flanks, and safeguard the rear. It was fast, powerful, and mobile. In essence, it was the elite branch of a nation's military. Haig was thus in a position to have a say in the development of modern cavalry. He knew it needed to evolve if it was to have a place on the modern battlefield. On the eve of the 20th century, the cavalry debate was shaped by two competing currents, mounted infantry versus hybrid cavalry. The difference between the two being simple. Mounted infantry was an attempt to increase mobility by training more infantry to ride horses, hybrid cavalry being the opposite, training cavalrymen in the duties of infantry. Hybrid cavalry are commonly referred to as dragoons. From the get-go, Haig opposed the mounted infantry model. For one, the cavalry was always a small, tight-knit group. Expanding it will require an exponential growth in horses, skilled officers, and more importantly, time and money. It takes a very long time to master a horse, and it was feared that their poor horsemanship and lack of efficiency would lead to mounts being worn out at an unprecedented rate. Instead, Haig favored the hybrid dragoon model. This was already radically different than cavalry's traditional role. Historically, cavalry regiments were positioned away from the battlefield. This way, they could be brought in at the right moment and take the opposition's flanks by surprise. Essentially, battles had been won or lost based on the timing of the cavalry charge, hence its reputation as a national game-changer. Exposing one's cavalry too early, or too late, often resulted in disaster. Successful commanders like Cromwell and Napoleon had always timed their charges accordingly, baiting their opponents to launch their strikes ahead of schedule. In this context, one can deduce that the role of the infantry was to hold and wear out the enemy before the cavalry could provide the coup de grace. Here comes the cavalry is more than just an expression after all. Asking the cavalry to fight like infantry was thus a major departure from the norm, but technology had made it an inevitable process. While a charging horse remained a formidable target, Haig believed that cavalrymen had to learn to fight like infantry. This included a whole new set of skills, close order formations, constructing fortifications, and marksmanship. Haig envisioned a cavalry that was just as comfortable on foot as it was on horseback. Haig also noted that the traditional sword and lance was fast becoming outdated by rifles and carbines. This debate might seem redundant to us today. I mean, who cares about changes in cavalry, right? Well, it means a lot, actually. For one, it shows that Haig was open to change and reinterpretation. As a cavalryman, he cannot be blamed for wanting to see it evolve to changing circumstances. After all, this was 1893, 21 years before the First World War. It would have taken a prophetic genius to predict the battlefields of 1916-17. His judgments should thus be seen in the proper context, not used to condemn him for events two decades later. A second important point is that during 1914, the BEF would adopt Haig's Dragoon model. In those grueling opening months, it was due to Haig's training regimes that the BEF was able to help stave off the German advance. But for the sake of argument, let's peer into the future and use Haig's theories against him. 
By the end of the 19th century, cavalry's time on the battlefield was drawing to a close, with machine guns and artillery fast becoming superior weapons. If he was so smart, why did he squander newer weapons like the tank? Certainly, that would have helped to avoid the costly battles at Passchendaele and the Somme. However, this line of questioning ignores certain realities. For one, First World War tanks were, for lack of a better word, pieces of junk. They were slow, expensive to build, and woefully unreliable. They were a one-shot weapon, virtually useless without artillery and infantry support. So few people were impressed by their performance, there was a movement to have them scrapped and forgotten, written off as another failed weapon in the annals of military history. Modern tanks, and thus modern tank tactics, did not emerge until the 1930s, when technology offered them a glimmer of hope. So really, you cannot accuse Hag of scoffing the tank in 1916 when it took another 20 years before they were of any value. Besides, tank warfare of the Second World War mirrored cavalry tactics of the past, smashing positions, wide sweeps, and general shock and awe. The problem was that tank technology had not cut up to tactical demands. If Rommel's Africa Corps used Great War-era tanks instead of panzers, I can guarantee you that the Desert Campaign would have played out much differently. So until the tank proved itself a suitable replacement to the horse, cavalry remained the best option. As a final nail in this myth, after the tank's debut in September 1916, Haig was one of the few who saw value in its development, and ordered another 1,000 tanks for the next offensive. So there, rant over. Phew. But getting back to our story, after serving as ADC to Fraser, Haig moved on to serve under Sir Evelyn Wood, Quartermaster General, an important figure in Haig's early rise. Through working with Wood, Haig met the Duke of Cambridge, who was just completing his 39th year as CNC of the British Army. Here is the source of some controversy. Fraser and Wood recognized Haig's talents and wanted to see him progress up the ladder. But having failed the staff college examination, there was little they could do. What they could do, however, was appeal to the Duke himself and ask him to nominate Haig to staff college without further written or medical examinations. The Duke agreed to this and Douglas Haig entered Staff College Camberley in January 1896. Royal influence got him into Staff College. Of that, there can be no doubt. The problem is that it's been wrenched from its proper context and used to condemn him further. The truth is that Haig did not need to court royal influence, because he already had it. His sister, Henrietta, was married to whiskey distiller William Jameson, and Jameson was a friend of future King Edward VII then the Prince of Wales. This connection, however, would not have worked had Hag not proven himself. He was no loafer. He had gotten himself through Oxford, Sandhurst, and a decade in India all on his own merit, establishing himself as a rising star in Britain's army. There was also the issue of patronage, the ancient system where a senior, the patron, helps hone the skills of their protege. The Victorian army worked on this system. Respected men like Fraser and Wood helped Hag advance because they recognized his talents and potential. Had Hag been an empty uniform, it is unlikely they would have given him a professional endorsement. Staff College curriculum was a two-year course, divided into junior-senior levels. Each level consisted of 30 students, so needless to say, everyone came to know each other quite quickly. Other students in Hag's class included E.H. Allenby, who would command British and Indian forces in Mesopotamia, and William Robertson. Robertson is a name worth noting, especially once we start talking about the Somme campaign in more detail. Robertson is an interesting guy, being the only man in Britain's military to go from private to field marshal. 
For Hag, Staff College was a worthwhile experience. He was always on the move and became absorbed in all aspects of military life. Most of the time, he was busy completing the new cavalry drill book, which his predecessor, Sir John French, had left unfinished. He was also taught the complexities of command through the study of military history. Most often, his courses followed the Napoleonic model, being taught that warfare was mobile, structured, and decisive. But as we've seen throughout the podcast, those three words, mobile, structured, and decisive, are the antithesis of the First World War battlefield. Historians who criticize Hag use this to argue that the Staff College syllabus was long antiquated. Graduates who pass into active service were thus bringing with them obsolete strategies drilled into them by senior instructors. The reason Staff College taught the Napoleonic model was because it worked. The underpinnings of a successful command have remained the same throughout history. As Gary Sheffield points out, military operations in different eras of history have more in common with each other than any other human activity. Technology and weapons change over time, but the human element of command has remained the same. Future leaders study past campaigns. That's how they learn. The reason men like Alexander, Hannibal, and Napoleon are still studied today is because they provide a model of what works. Haig was taught these same principles in 1896, because in 1896, the lessons were just as valuable then as they are today. Moreover, Haig would find himself in active service just two years later, and will put these lessons to good use. When he graduated Staff College in 1898, he was a 36-year-old captain. For a brief moment, his career was directionless, so he decided to take winter leave. His plans, however, were soon interrupted. His patron, Evelyn Wood, ordered him to take active duty in Sudan. The situation in Sudan had been vulnerable for most of the 19th century. The details surrounding this most recent flare-up are beyond the scope of this podcast, so I'll just briefly summarize. Essentially, a religious war had broken out. A man by the name of Muhammad Ahmad proclaimed himself the Mahdi, meaning the Redeemer. By 1885, the Mahdi's followers, commonly referred to as the Dervishes, had pushed an Anglo-Egyptian army out of Sudan, which ended with the capture of Charles Gordon's besieged garrison at the capital city of Khartoum. This disaster forced the British to cut their losses. But after 10 years of non-involvement, a power struggle among the dervishes threatened to spill over into Egypt. The Mahdi was dead, and a new leader, Khalifa Abdahali, emerged on top. The Khalifa's regime was even more oppressive than the Mahdi's, and so in 1898, the British marched back in Sudan in hopes of reclaiming their former possession. The man charged with leading this new Anglo-Egyptian army was Sir Herbert Kitchener, future Secretary of State for War. Kitchener did a supreme job. He was a painstaking commander, thorough in his logistics, and an excellent strategist. He built a massive rail line connecting the frontier to the interior, which proved indispensable as his army moved deeper inland. Kitchener also had no delusions about his enemy. The dervishes were skillful and cunning. Their favorite tactic was to lay in the grass and slash at the legs of British horses. They also possessed a decent amount of firepower and were known to fight like fanatics. Douglas Haig arrived in Cairo on the 3rd of February 1898 and was given command of a cavalry squadron of the 16th Lancers. That March, Kitchener's army advanced towards the Atbara River. Haig's squadron was providing a wide screen when it was surprised by a small dervish force moving in the opposite direction. A brief firefight followed. Accustomed to fighting in temperatures of over 40 degrees, the dervishes held the upper hand, but eventually retreated after realizing the size of Kitchener's force. 
This was Hag's first taste of combat, and like any enterprising young officer, found the experience exhilarating, like he had passed his first real test of command. Afterwards, he sat down and wrote a detailed account of the battle. In his report, we find an interesting passage. He gave a glowing review of Egyptian cavalry, and expressed his admiration for dervish horsemanship. But his final lesson concerned weapons. He argued that the expedition needed more machine guns, which could be used to weed out dervish riders in the thick scrub. Here we see Hag, the supposed reactionary technophobe, recognizing the importance of machine guns at an early stage in his career. This may seem like a minute point compared to what's to come, but since Hag has been so thoroughly characterized as such, it bears repeating. Hag would then go on to see action in two major engagements, the Battle of Atbara on the 8th of April, and the decisive Battle of Omdurman on the 2nd of September. In these two engagements, Hag's cavalry distinguished themselves through their use of combined arms, that is, the hybrid system which Hag supported. Their crucial moment came during the Battle of Atbara. In the pitched fighting, a strong dervish attack had smashed into the Egyptian cavalry, nearly bringing a collapse of the British flank. Recognizing this precarious position, Haig rode out to the front and personally ordered his machine guns to set up a base of fire which prevented a dervish encirclement. Haig's timely intervention won him the attention of Lord Kitchener, who soon promoted him to major. Their working relationship, however, was far from smooth. Before he departed from Cairo, Evelyn Wood had ordered Haig to keep a secret correspondence with him regarding Kitchener's leadership. This type of back-channel dealings was by no means unheard of and it's doubtful that Kitchener was oblivious to it. Haig was impressed with Kitchener's overall leadership. The massive rail network he constructed was vital for logistic support, and he marveled at his industrious work ethic. But he also felt Kitchener took too many risks, and overburdened himself with work. Haig saved his harshest critique following the Battle of Omdurman. He criticized Kitchener for being too reliant on modern weaponry. To a point, Haig was correct. Kitchener abandoned his plan of attack, opting to let the dervishes come down from the hills and fight on the plain. While this was justifiable, he allowed the dervish force to come a bit too close to the British line. One regiment, the 21st Lancers, was ordered to occupy Omdurman before the Khalifa's men could withdraw to the city. This proved a costly move. The 21st Lancers ran into 2,500 dervish warriors concealed in a depression. They dismounted and used their rifles to clear out the valley, taking considerable casualties. 21 killed, 45 wounded, and 120 horses. The 21st never occupied the city, but what their charge did do was tip the Khalifa off, who, with 20,000 of his warriors, escaped Omdurman through the back door. Hag was incensed by this decision. It smelled like an improvised move which ultimately cost a resounding victory. Omdurman was the decisive battle, but the war would continue for another year as the British chased the Khalifa through the countryside. For most of the Anglo-Egyptian forces, though, Omdurman marked the end of their service. Hag was posted back to England, to the 1st Cavalry Brigade at Aldershot. His commanding officer was future BEF CNC Sir John French, who at this time was a leading figure in British cavalry. Sir French had first met Hag back in India, and again while he was ADC to Keith Fraser. He was so impressed with Hag that he personally requested him as a staff officer and was to the moon when it was approved. After seeing active service, Hag was less than impressed with his new posting. Having put his training to practical use, finding himself pushing papers and running maneuvers was less than exhilarating. At this point in his career, the most interesting aspect was his relationship with Sir French. 
the two men were total opposites of one another. French was good-natured, talkative, and had a lively imagination. While he was charming, his personal life was the source of controversy. French was a notorious womanizer who had a number of high-profile affairs, including the wife of a foreign office official. He earned himself the nickname, the Little Field Marshal, because he stood about 5'6", while one of his mistresses was over 6 foot. Haig, on the other hand, was much more strict and Puritan. He rarely socialized and occupied his time with work, avoiding sit-downs when he could. One possible explanation was that he was suffering from some form of depression, but there was little to support this. The relationship worked on each other's strengths. French, the public figure who handled the military bureaucracy, and Haig, the man behind the curtain who ensured everything remained on track. He saw French as a crucial component to British cavalry and liked him well enough, so his disinterest in his superior's personal life was not due to malice. The less savory aspect of their relationship arose from the fact that French was up to his neck in debt, so much so that his career was in jeopardy. He had hoped to alleviate this burden by buying expensive shares in South African gold mines, but it turned out that these shares, which were sold at an inflated price, were crap, and when they went kersplat, French got hooked with the bill. In today's amounts, the debt was upwards of 234,000 British pounds, adjusted for inflation, close to 300,000 American dollars. To stave off some of his more aggressive creditors, Haig arranged for the sum to be paid in total, as a loan to Sir French. That's right, Haig lent some of his own money to bail out his superior officer. This has gone down as one of Haig's most controversial pre-war decisions. His critics used it as proof that he advanced his career by lending money to French, and by this means maintained his loyalty until he was able to replace him in 1915. But these are little more than accusations with no evidence to back them up. The two men had worked together for a year beforehand, and the thought of French having to resign his post because of personal finance was deeply troubling to Haig. In a letter to Henrietta, Haig voiced his concerns for Sir John. Quote, it would be a terrible thing if French were made a bankrupt, such a loss to the army as well as to me personally. For of course, we can do a lot here together towards improving things. End quote. No doubt it was ethically questionable, but if Haig truly wanted French out of the way, loaning him money to prolong his career seems counterintuitive if you ask me. Fortunately, distractions were rebound. In 1899, South Africa had again erupted in conflict. This was the Second Boer War, which would last from 1899 until 1902, and became an embarrassing sore on Britain's international standing. It started when the Boers, who were descendants of Dutch farmers, had formed the free provinces of Transvaal and the Orange Free State. The Boers were British subjects, even on their own turf, which meant British troops had to be stationed to protect them from their warring neighbours. The cost of maintaining an active garrison there was too much for London, so instead, they granted Transvaal and the Orange State their full independence in the early 1850s. Things probably would have worked out for the best had recent mining operations not unearthed massive gold deposits. The problem was that the gold discovered by the Boers was embedded in granite, making it difficult to extract. So the Boers were forced to call in British and Turkish engineers to help. The leader of the Boers, Paul Kruger, distrusted British motives, and in turn began using the mines to purchase weapons from Germany. This irked the British something fierce, who felt that Germany was trying to orchestrate a proxy war against them. It was during this time when the major European powers were carving up chunks of Africa for themselves, with Germany being the least successful. It was easy to conclude that Germany was trying to undermine British interests by supporting the Boers, 
and in response, Britain felt it had no choice but to defend its former possession. So in October 1899, Britain dispatched an army to track down and defeat Kruger and the Boers. The early stages of the war could not have gone worse for the British. The Boers were highly skilled fighters, armed with modern weaponry. They knew the terrain well and were all of fighting strength. John French and Douglas Haig arrived in country on October 10, 1899, and by the 17th of November, the Boers had locked up three British garrisons around the towns of Ladysmith, Mafeking, and Kimberley. At this point, French, Haig, and the 1st Cavalry Brigade were in Cape Town, preparing to take part in the anticipated relief operations. This initial setback, known as Black Week, would actually help Britain in the long run. It forced the government to sit up and take the conflict seriously. Volunteers from Canada, Australia, and New Zealand soon arrived to take part, swelling the British forces to over 300,000 men. To the international community, this all seemed a bit much. The Boers became the world's underdogs with France, Germany, and Russia each taking turns cheering them on while thumbing their noses at London. It was clear that Britain had no idea what it was doing or what it was in for, and in many ways, this was the correct assumption. The Second Boer War is important to understanding Haig's development. It is easy to dismiss it as another colonial sideshow, but it did in fact preview some of the challenges faced during the First World War. It was fought over an enormous terrain, the size of France and Germany combined. Logistics, communication, and mobility would be the key to success. It would also show the need for solid intelligence and reconnaissance, as there were no accurate or reliable maps. The Boers were a different sort of opponent altogether who fought an effective guerrilla campaign. Every crossroad, rail line, bridgehead, and river crossing was an ideal ambush point which the Boers exploited. Defeating them would thus require a new approach to warfare and tactics. Then there was the issue of hygiene, rapid weather changes, insects, fly-borne diseases, and unknown infections which would plague British forces incessantly. Not only would this affect the morale of the men, but also the well-being of their horses. When he arrived at Cape Town, John French received more bad news. A Boer column was descending south of Kimberley, threatening the town of Colesburg. The Empire could not afford another embarrassment, so he and Haig were sent to the region with orders to maintain an active defense. They did so with great effect, tying up the Boer army for three months. Faced by roughly 4,000 to 5,000 Boer regulars, their chosen method was to raid the Boer lines daily and harass their supply lines with sweeping cavalry charges and combined arms operations. Their strategy paid off dividends, and by the new year, French and Haig had made a name for themselves in the press. French was the public figure, the name associated with victory, but they also knew that Haig was at his elbow. French boosted Haig's profile by praising his untiring energy and consummate ability. The new year brought a new approach to the war. Having weathered the storm, Britain was prepared to go on the offensive. There was also a change at the top. The previous commander, Henry Buller, was replaced by Field Marshal Earl Roberts, with Herbert Kitchener serving as Roberts' chief of staff. The first objective was to liberate Kimberley, which got underway on the 12th of February. It was decided that French's cavalry should lead the charge. It was because of French and Haig's initiative that the liberation of Kimberley was a cavalry epic. Despite being short 3,000 men, French decided to rely on surprise. Leaving behind his wagons and supply carts, his cavalry charged toward the Boers with all possible speed. This main assault hit the breach, at the same moment as a flanking party, led by the 12th Lancers, secured a key river crossing to the east. 
the Boers found their escape route cut off and began retreating, leaving supplies in their wake. The cavalry dismounted and engaged the Boers with carbines. This action lasted until morning, when Kitchener's supply columns reached the battlefield. The intensity of French's attack threw the Boers into confusion. Thinking the British objective was to their left, they had pivoted themselves to keep the British in front. As a consequence, this exposed an open plain between the two armies. French seized the opportunity. The dismounted infantry got back on their horses and charged through the gap, running down the Boers caught in the open. By 6pm, the path to Kimberley was cleared. The relief of Kimberley proved that cavalry still had a role on the modern battlefield. For Haig, it was a stunning affirmation that properly trained hybrid horsemen could hit with speed and force. After Kimberley, the initiative passed to the British. In late February, Ladysmith was relieved, followed by Johannesburg and Pretoria by the end of June. But as the British chipped away at Boer holdings, a new type of war was beginning to emerge. Having fled inland, the Boers resorted to guerrilla tactics, in the form of commando units. These commando units were usually a few dozen to a hundred men strong, and used hit-and-run techniques against British supply trains. The Boers, you'll remember, were excellent horsemen, and the South African countryside was ideal for this type of warfare. Tracking these commandos down was a whole other issue, one which frustrated the British. As the Boers kept up the pressure, the British responded with increasing heavy-handedness. Douglas Haig and John French, now in charge of Kitchener's cavalry division, saw much action during this period. But like the rest of the army, found their efforts stymied by the quick-thinking commandos. Many historians point to this second phase of the South African campaign as the beginning of modern total war. In short, the British were embarrassed by their inability to track down the Boer leaders and resorted to extreme brutality against the Boer population. As conventional methods were not going to work, the army would need to adapt to changing circumstances. The cavalry division was split up to allow better flexibility, and Haig was given command of a brigade in January 1901. Kitchener then ordered him to clear out the Boer strongholds in the south. Like so many of his colleagues, he would not complete this task successfully, as the Boers had the British dancing to their own tune. But the experience had taught Haig that warfare was not glamorous. While fighting against the commandos, Haig saw the savage, unrepentant side of war. The Boers were dependent on civilian support. This was how they got their supplies and info on British positioning. Kitchener thus pursued an aggressive campaign against the civilian population. To deprive the Boers of support, the British exercised a scorched-earth policy and forced large numbers of civilians into concentration camps. Crops were burned, and livestock was seized. Boer sympathizers were shot on the spot, with Haig ordering his fair share. In many ways, this type of warfare is comparable to modern-day counterinsurgency, friend by day and envy by night. The British were faced with this same problem. To keep track of suspected commandos, Haig began ticketing houses. Each farmhouse was searched, and the descriptions of the residents were posted outside. At any moment, a party could search the house, and if anyone found inside did not match the description, they were subject to arrest. If a member was absent during this inspection, they were noted as rebels. Despite these challenges, the cavalry continued to play a major role on the battlefield. Kitchener had begun constructing a series of forts called blockhouses. British cavalry would drive the Boers towards these blockhouses where they would be intercepted and contained. The blockhouses also guarded rail lines, bridges, and important crossroads. They had the effect of limiting Boer mobility and depriving them of the secrecy needed to operate. 
the blockhouse system was ultimately ineffective. The Boers continued to slip through in large numbers, leaving the British frustrated. In the end, the Boers failed in their objective as well, which was to spark a national uprising against the British. Negotiations between Boer and British leadership eventually settled on peace terms, signing an agreement on the 23rd of September, 1902. After the war, Haig's reputation soared. He was promoted to colonel over the heads of several more senior officers. Haig is the most thoughtful, educated, and large-minded of our staff officers, wrote Sir Ian Hamilton, who would command the expeditionary force at Gallipoli. Haig's peacetime record was now supplemented by active service in Sudan and South Africa, winning the favorable opinion of John French and Herbert Kitchener. The triad that would lead Britain in the next war was nearly complete. Following a brief stopover in Scotland, Haig was posted back to India in October 1903, where he worked to train Indian and British cavalry in the latest developments. The wider context was Kitchener's determination to fit the army in India to fight overseas, Haig's and Kitchener's views on cavalry largely coinciding. Haig was thus given a free hand in molding this new force. He saw the hybrid cavalryman as hugely versatile, a great improvement on traditional horse soldiers. Cavalry who could dismount and fight like infantry, while still capable of shock action and cold steel charges, represented the future of British cavalry. Armed with his experiences in Sudan and South Africa, Haig drilled this mentality into his soldiers. Lord Kitchener and the Inspector General were impressed with what they saw. George Barrow, one of Haig's former staff college classmates and future Quartermaster General of the Indian Army, noted his impressions of Haig's training, writing, quote, his instruction was more practical and realistic than anything the cavalry in India had known previously. We who were fortunate to attend rides learned a tremendous lot under Haig. In 1905, Haig took leave and was back in England. That summer, he met his future wife, Dorothy Maud Vivian, while playing golf outside Windsor Castle. Dorothy Vivian was quite the catch. She was young, beautiful, and served as maid of honor to Queen Alexandra the wife of Edward VII. She and Haig had crossed paths before, but the ever-occupied Douglas had no time to pursue a relationship. Dorothy, on the other hand, was quite taken by Douglas, but understood his demanding schedule prevented meaningful courtship. But things were different now. Haig had his own command, and Dorothy was free of her royal obligations. Seventy-two hours after they met, Haig proposed and Dorothy accepted. On July 11th, the two were wed in a private ceremony at Buckingham Palace. Now we should pause here and address some of the myths regarding Douglas and Dorothy's marriage. Since Dorothy was the Queen's maid of honor, Haig's critics have argued their marriage was a cynical play by Douglas to secure royal favor. This is simply untrue. For one, Haig already had a royal connection through his brother-in-law, and as we've seen, his relationship with the royals had not served his career in any way. Their courtship was rapid, having met and married within one month. Hag was 44 and Dorothy was 26, but this was quite common for the time. Due to overseas postings and grueling schedules, most army officers did not marry until their 30s or 40s, so beyond the quick turnaround, their marriage was not uncommon in the least. The most plausible explanation for their courtship was a case of love at first sight. Hag would have to return to India by August, so they did not have the luxury of time. One of the more far-fetched theories suggests that Hag was secretly a homosexual, thus his marriage a ploy to shake off these rumors. There is no evidence to support this theory at all. Historians who support it, like Dennis Winter, base their assessments on gossip and secondhand accounts, 
usually from jealous rivals whom Hag had passed over. While it is true Hag was inarticulate, particularly around women, this should not be seen as homosexual or misogynistic, at least not without solid evidence, of which there is none whatsoever. Besides, Hag's marriage was a happy one, which produced four children. Afterwards, Hag learned to compartmentalize his life, always keeping his military and private life separate. But it also seemed that Hag learned to loosen up and enjoy life a bit more. While in India, the Hags were regular attendees at dinner balls and galas, and were seen chatting politely in the circles of young couples. Dorothy became his closest confidant, and he wrote her daily throughout the First World War. As a further sign of their strength, Dorothy would go on to defend her husband's reputation after his death. Concerned about the growing rumor mill, she published her own memoir, The Man I Knew, in 1936, which remains an indispensable source regarding Hag's private life. If there is to be any criticisms of Hag's personal life, is that it's actually pretty boring. They would have the same problems as any married couple, but it is otherwise unremarkable. As Gary Sheffield puts it, Hag's private life was as blameless as John French's was colorful. Meanwhile, the British Empire struggled to rebuild its reputation after the Boer War. The alliance system had left Britain on the outside looking in, and there was a real chance she could lose her foothold on the continent. The Empire was thus forced to shake off its freehand doctrine and enter a series of formal agreements. In 1902, a military alliance with Japan was signed, followed by the Entente Cordiales with France and Russia three years later. But we know all that already, right? So what was happening with Haig and the British Army? Well, as the Empire entered this new era, the Army was making adjustments on their own. In May 1906, Haig was back in England full-time as Director of Military Training. Two years later, Asquith's Liberals would come to power at a time when the European arms race was heating up. The Royal Navy had just launched HMS Dreadnought, Russia was rebuilding after its humiliating defeat by the Japanese, while Germany took every chance it could to undermine the Entente. With the Liberals in power, there were sweeping changes to the War Office. Kitchener, French, and Haig were each given posts for the purpose of modernizing the British Army. Helping round out this new leadership was Richard Halden, the Secretary of State for War. Halden is one of the great reformers in British military history, because it was through his efforts that the BEF would be founded, with Haig having an active role in its creation. By 1908, there emerged a real possibility that Britain would find itself in a war with Germany. It was by no means unavoidable, but the signs were beginning to point in that direction. The South African War clearly showed the need for uniformity, cohesion, and preparedness. Haig was thus given the task of writing the Field Service Regulations Manual, which set about Army doctrine and acted as a go-to guide for officers in the field. In many ways, the FSR was the first attempt to codify the British Army, which, unlike the Royal Navy, was based upon pragmatism and personal initiative. But it should be noted that the FSR was nowhere near as rigid as its naval counterpart. Haig knew his Clausewitz, and understood that when the fog of war creeps, officers need their own imagination. He had learned his lessons from Kitchener's over-centralized command. Although the FSR was army doctrine, it was not dogmatic but Haig ensured it was mandatory reading nonetheless. Halden dreamed of creating a national army of 900,000 men, all recruited on a volunteer basis. But this proved too far of a stretch, not just for the army, but also the political market. Halden was forced to scale back his vision into two separate identities. A full-time expeditionary force, ready to be deployed overseas or to Europe as the need arose, and a territorial force, 
a part-time volunteer army who could be mobilized to defend the home island. Hag and Halden worked well together. Like Kitchener, they both agreed that a future war would be a national struggle, lasting three years at the least. But there was a mathematical problem which was almost insoluble. Britain could count just 435,000 combat-ready troops. The Dominions, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia could offer assistance as well, but their mobilization efforts cannot be controlled from London. Germany, however, could mobilize 1.5 million men, so it was clear that manpower would be an issue. Where Haig saw a viable solution was in India. The only issue was that the new CNC of the Indian Army was a hard-nosed traditionalist, who thought training Indian troops to fight in Europe was unnecessary. Haig found his efforts to incorporate the Indian Army obstructed, and he was ordered to destroy his mobilization plan. Eight years after he first commanded troops in combat, Haig was given command of Aldershot on March 1, 1912, consisting of two divisions and a cavalry brigade. This would be his final peacetime command before the Great War. Unfortunately, his tenure at Aldershot got off to a rocky start. In the maneuvers that spring, he was soundly beaten by his rival James Grierson. The crux being that Haig failed to appreciate the role of spotter planes in tracking enemy movements. Grierson did, and as a result, was able to ambush Haig's invasion force decisively. Haig was deeply embarrassed, no less because his defeat was witnessed by several VIP spectators. John French, French General Ferdinand Foch, foreign delegations from Russia, Canada, and New Zealand, and most importantly, recently crowned George V, who was eager to see the young Haig in action. This setback was not without its silver lining. Haig had been outgeneraled by Grierson plain and simple, but he was eager to learn from these mistakes. Afterwards, he became an active supporter of military aviation, making regular visits to the balloon school on base to stay current on latest developments. The idea that Haig opposed the military use of aircraft is simply untrue. It's a myth pulled from thin air to fit the collective. He is often misinterpreted as saying that airplanes would never have a role on the battlefield, and that cavalry would remain the best way of gaining information. What Haig was referring to was the limitations of air power at the time. Like the tank, it was restricted by technology. Aerial photography in 1912 was not the 4K planet Earth resolution we enjoy today. Photographs were dark, blurry, and difficult to read. The cameras themselves were big and bulky, requiring the pilot to steer with his knees while he leaned outside the cockpit. It was a dangerous art, and the time it took to photograph, land, develop, analyze, and then send the information to command could take hours, depending on the weather, of course. Cavalry, on the other hand, could ride in all weather, and in 1914 was still the quickest and most effective way of acquiring information, so one can be forgiven for being a skeptic when it offered so little. But at the maneuvers that summer, Haig was shown the usefulness of air power, and became a convert overnight. The BEF fought with spotter planes in 1914, and by 1915, Haig was one of the few to support the formation of the Royal Flying Corps. His friendship with RFC Chief Hugh Trenchard is one of the best contemporary records which debunk this myth. In short, Haig confided in Trenchard that he would call off the attack on Neuve Chapelle if the RFC was unable to fly. If Haig can be accused of anything, it's that he expected too much from air power before it could deliver. Nevertheless, air power was a fixture of Haig's battles in the Great War. It did not always work as he had hoped, but it showed he was a modern commander in touch with changing developments.
For the last years of peace, Haig watched the storm clouds gather. He continued to train at Aldershot while arranging a suitable home for his family. When Britain declared war on Germany on the 4th of August, Haig was given command of 1st Corps of the BEF. In a meeting with senior staff the following day, Haig argued to withhold the BEF until more of the Empire's resources could be mobilized. This was because he expected the war to be long, and the Empire needed to prepare itself before it was exhausted. Strategic realities rendered this point redundant. Britain no longer had a free hand in military affairs. One week after this meeting, the Germans had carved through Belgium and were already on French soil. On the 15th of August, Sir John French and Douglas Haig were again in the field, facing an army the likes of which had not been seen since the days of Napoleon. For the remainder of the year, the BEF would clash with the Germans in a series of engagements which seemed so alien and remote to what would come in 1916. Mons, Le Cateau, the Battle of the Marne, and finally First Ypres. The trench system settled, and the armies dug in for a long siege. For the first 16 months of the war, John French commanded the BEF, not Douglas Haig. His critics sometimes lose sight of this. He was also not the one who invaded France. The Germans were. Nor did he establish the trench system, which led to four years of bloodletting. He emerged to command the BEF because Sir French proved a failure. He crumbled under the strain and was left a nervous wreck. There may have been other officers who could have stepped into his shoes, but Haig had shown he was the best man for the job. He took command of the BEF on December 19, 1915, at a time when the war was at an impasse. The armies, its weapons, and its participants had already been transformed. Each warrior knew there was no quick fix. The Dardanelles had shown there would be no shortcut. The defeats in Russia and Serbia had shown that territorial conquest did not mean victory. Verdun had shown no army was as weak as it seemed. So what was Hag to do? Well, we'll begin talking about that next day when we begin dissecting the ever-complex Battle of the Somme. What it was, what it was meant to do, and who was responsible for putting it together. It's worth remembering that the Battle of the Somme continued beyond the carnage of July the 1st. There was July 2nd, July 3rd, and so on. It did not end until November. So what was happening during those latter parts of the battle? And why did Hag not call it off after the events of July the 1st? All of this and more in the coming days. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you enjoy the show and are looking to help us out, go to iTunes and leave us a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 48 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.